Hello everyone and welcome to the Rippling Pages podcast, interviews with writers. I'm Liam Bishop, a writer from Leeds, and I'm here today with Sarah Schofield. Sarah's stories have appeared in a wide range of journals. She's also been shortlisted for the Bridport Prize, the Guardian Travel Writing Competition, while also being a winner of the Orange New Voices Prize. Her debut collection of stories, Safely Gathered In, was published by Common Press toward the end of last year. And in that collection, she uses a range of voices, modes and narrative styles. She takes us through the contents of a storage facility, details the different elements of a course called Nostalgia for Beginners, while also using more conventional narrative modes. Doing so makes us feel safely gathered in the confines of the story, but she deploys elements of the surreal so we never feel entirely comfortable. Sarah is also a creative writing lecturer at Edge Hill University. So, Sarah, this series is all about what's beneath the surface. Your stories start with a dead husband sending messages to his wife from beyond the grave as she tries to make a new life with a new partner. And in doing so, we're introduced to a writer with a keen eye for the macabre, but also the surreal and unsettling. Can you just talk a bit more about these relationships and all the different dynamics that are going on? Because there's quite a lot of work in there. Yeah, so as you've just mentioned, there's obviously the relationship between the the dead husband and the wife and the the negotiations that he's speaking he's still speaking to her through these emails but she is unable to speak back because he's he's deceased um so that's a really interesting dynamic that I wanted to explore what do you do with that kind of one-way conversation how do you react to that there was issues within their relationship it wasn't a perfect relationship what relationship is but there was lots of um lots that was unspoken within their relationship already so again that's another interesting element that I wanted to explore in that work and what things do we say what things don't we say the things we do the things we don't do in our interactions with um, each other I really love stories that have characters who are really authentic and um, and the relate it's always about their relationships with other people I think that that give us that authenticity how people interact with each other is endlessly fascinating to me and I wanted to have a really forensic examination of that within this story particularly across my fiction more generally but with this story that was the thing I was really interested in exploring there's writers such as Elizabeth Baines who I admire hugely for the way she negotiates relationships in her stories they are so authentic and you you'll be reading something from her and and have that moment of oh gosh I know that feeling because I've had I've had that experience when I've been interacting with that friend or, yeah, um, yeah. or or that relation, you know, that relation to me. So, yes, so it's all about these different ways that we're interacting. And of course, there's Kathy, um, Emmy's sister. Um, so Emmy's the main character and then her sister, Kathy, and the, the way that they interact, um, because they're sisters, they've known each other forever. There is a slightly different power play their different balance of 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 power um and exploring that what is kind of just submerged in what they don't say to each other I really wanted to explore that and um and investigate that a little bit through the through the story that's really interesting and there's a lot well there's a lot going on beneath the surface because like mm-hmm. I said this husband's sending messages from it's, it calls it a dead man switch, isn't it? The mechanism mm. is a dead, which is the name of the story and how it sort yeah. of sends these. But what he's sending, you know, it's not like it's not PSI love you, is it? He's not sending, you know, nice, lovely messages. <laughs> he's sending reminders about MOTs and travel insurance and that kind of thing. 
why did you choose to create the messages like this? Why were they reminders mm. for things like this rather than mm. something more romantic? I think it's because it's who he was. Um, his character, he was he was always the kind of the organiser, the, the doer, the person that filled up the bird feeders, the person that booked the holidays. He, he had that kind of role within their relationship um, and not always at Emmy's uh, choice. She, you know, she's finding that there's things that she really enjoys doing now. And so, but his kind of, his way, his language of love to her was by doing and whether he and she were aware of that or not, that was the way they played their relationship with each other. And yeah, it, the idea of, of actually him trying to be helpful uh, in the same way that he had in, in life, uh, but in death, and him just maybe being a little bit blind to the, the fact that that, is, that maybe wasn't what she needed or wanted. Um, but then I also wanted to put an element of like, actually, was there something in there that, that's quite helpful? And, and, you know, it's not entirely, I didn't want to be entirely sort of one thing or the other. I, I want them to be a bit of a grey area where people are kind of querying. She did stay with him, but, you know, she stayed with him in the marriage. So uh, before he passed away. So, you know, that was a choice that she was actively making. So I want there to be a bit of doubt and a bit of speculation there. Um, incidentally, um, after writing this story, I found out that there actually is a company that you can do this with um and people uh, yeah um that you can arrange you can arrange for for emails to be sent in this way so if anyone reads the story and thinks oh that's a cracking idea did you find did you get any inspiration then from the company or did you find out afterwards that you that this was a thing believe it or not only afterwards quite often that that happens you'll think that you've created something entirely original <laughs> um or completely unbelievable or completely un you know quantifiable and then and then you find out it actually does exist in the real world. And sometimes that can be quite a shocking thing to find. Um, my inspiration actually came from two places. Firstly, the, the William and Mary Roald Dahl story that I actually mentioned in the, in the story itself with the, uh, the guy with his eye and his brain in a, a pickling jar. And I wanted to explore that idea a little bit more. But actually, often it comes from like two or three things will nudge you in a direction of a story. And, and the other thing was that um, my dad actually passed away a number of years ago. But then a few years after he died, an email arrived in my inbox from his email address. And it wasn't anything at all. It was just a kind of a glitch or some sort of, you know, internet weirdness. But for that moment where you see that email pop up from somebody that you know isn't here anymore, it is a bit of a, a kind of moment of like, oh, <laughs> you think what's going on here? And it's that idea of that almost haunting, haunting through technology, which is quite intriguing and, and something that I think I might want to explore a bit more um, in the future as well. Yeah, well, the reason I ask is because there is a lot of that kind of surreal techno inspired um <laughs> Un I think uncanniness, I don't know if you can call it that. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm sorry to hear about your father, and I can't imagine what it was like to sort of have this email pop up. He would have really enjoyed it, actually. <laughs> I think that, and I didn't, it was a little moment of like, oh, but it was something that he would have thought was brilliant. And yeah, he was an aspiring writer. He wanted to be a writer, I think, and I think he would be quite happy with that being a little bit of a, a nudge towards this story. Well, this, the, the title story, Safely Gathered In, that is about things that have been kept, have been stored. Um, mm. And some very weird and sort of strange things that have been kept. But it's also mm. that kind of weird, I guess there's a kind of corporate element to it. There's that kind of uh, futuristic, I don't know what we're going to call it, kind of techno kind of vibe about it. But can you just mm. tell us a bit more about 
safely gathered in before we go into it? Of course, yeah. So this is a story where I wanted to, there was two things I wanted to do. Firstly, I wanted to see if I could write a story without any characters directly in view. So all the characters are sort of off stage and all we see is the things that they own that are in these little compartments of this self-storage uh, unit. So that was the first thing I wanted to explore, um, this kind of characterless landscape. And then the second thing I wanted to explore was I wanted to collage things together. I wanted to see if I could draw sort of three elements and, and weave them together to make them into um, a narrative. Um, so we have the voice of the self-storage unit uh, promo. I would probably describe it as Googled and looked up lots of different self-storage units and found out that kind of voice, that tone that they promote themselves in and used that with uh, woven through the, the text. Um, that's the voice that kind of speaks through the through the work intermittently. Then we have the inventory lists of the things that each person keeps within their unit. And then we also have this sort of third element that suggests itself halfway through the process of writing. I knew it needed something else. But it, it's from an old harvest hymn called uh, Come Ye Thankful People. And it's just lines from that, that sometimes they are precisely as they are in the song. And then other times I've sort of twisted them or edited them <laughs> to um, to mirror what's happening in the story. So those three elements, I really love the idea of kind of finding text and pulling it together to make something new, um, sort of like re recycling so those are the, the yeah those three elements drawn together, collaging together um, to create something original. And I that isn't that isn't something that I invented. Obviously, um, there'll be poet you know poets that are listening will know that that's something that has been occurring sort of like historically in poetry for a long time. Um, and the work of people like Adrian Henry who did new fast automatic daffodils that's thrown together with a um, it's Wordsworth poem plus uh, lines from an advert for the the daffodil car, I think, which came out in sixty seven, in nineteen sixty seven. Um, so it becomes a bit of a game, and I want the reader to maybe look at the units and and maybe have speculation about who owns those things and the shape of the person that's missing from that moment. This is Unit ninety seven. So he takes mm. through these different units. Unit ninety seven got one Persian rug, circa eighteen ninety, rolled, one Edwardian dining table, and ten upholstered chairs. One portrait, oil on canvas, woman with auburn hair and amber beads, nine mm. pairs of damask curtains. <laughs> so it continues. Got a set of National Geographic edition, April 1950 mm. to December 1991. And then we have a one Tupperware box containing hair and dust labeled sweepings. Unit 87 has got 122 cans of Tesco value baked beans, 122 mm. tins of John West tuna chunks, 122 tins of Prince's corned beef. 12 bags of Aldi family-sized penne pasta. So there's some very, um, there's an eclectic mix here. There's someone here that's preparing for a, um, a pandemic, perhaps. And there's Zombie another office. person that is, uh, yeah, that, that's, um, I, I don't know what they're, don't know what they're up to. I'm not, not going to lie, but I find it interesting that you call your stories, you've shot, this, this story is about recycled elements or keeping hold of things and you've mm. recycled certain things to create new meanings mm. and new, new identities but I find that interesting because your stories have the appearance of being very tightly controlled they're crafted um every kind of sentence has its place and its meaning you've got a lot to balance out and I guess it requires that kind of um element of control but when you look at this one when you come down to it it's basically descriptions uh, lists of 
I mean, there's other things in there, obviously, but there's lists of items. Um, the choices you made then in going into some of those units, uh, what were those? What were those choices? I guess. Um, so I know who owns each unit, um, but I don't need to. I don't need the people reading it to have the same ideas. I love the idea of the reader almost standing in that unit and looking around and going, who is this person that owns this stuff? It's sort of a bit like, who lives in a house like this? You know, it's that kind of, um, how much do our possessions speak to who we are or what we are or what's important to us? There's a big movement now about decluttering. And I just think, no, it's okay <laughs> to hold on to things that have some sort of meaning or importance to you. I mean, well, there is a limit, isn't there? We were talking about this idea that it, it speaks about our desire to kind of hold on to things. They're kind of decluttering uh, mm-hmm. and that kind of movement for decluttering. Um, I, mean, I don't know if this relates to any, I don't know if it came from sort of being inspired by, you know, the pandemic and, and, and stuck indoors with our possessions more or not, or... Mm-hmm. Um, but there's something in there. There's something, something very, even if it's the pandemic or not, there's something very human about holding on to our possessions and find it hard to uh, um, take them away for whatever reason. Yeah, I, I absolutely think so. I wrote this story pre-pandemic, so it wasn't influenced by that at all. But there's definitely, I really feel that objects hold a lot of resonance. So, and maybe not everyone feels like this, maybe there's people who are listening that don't have this relationship with objects and I'm not talking about every single object that we own but I think you know for a lot of the things that we decide to keep in our lives they hold memory they hold resonance they have connection connectedness to things or times or places that we find important and compelling and I think particularly at the moment with you know the way data is collected about everything that we do whether it's what we do in the gym or um you know we document our lives on social media or it's almost like I think a lot of the time it's because as humans we're really scared of forgetting and this idea of uh, you know if, if something else can hold the memory for us then that's quite useful um a lot of people use self-storage just to keep stuff in that has no real you know necessity or need but it's this fear of letting go and and I think there's a line isn't there I think I I like to have things around me that are key and I'm just looking around my desk now actually and you know there's things that I have around me that that hold resonance or importance or significance but maybe there is a limit to how much you can actually hold on to and, and how much you can expect other things to hold memory for you as a, as a person in your life. Um, and I think that's the interesting thing about containment, isn't it? How much can we contain ourselves within our minds, our brains, mm, um, and, and that fear of um, things dispersing away from us? Yeah, that's what I find really interesting in, in these stories. Um, there is a, there's a physical capacity to mm-hmm. objects and things, even though it might not seem like it sometimes, but there is a, but there is a, there's a psychological capacity. There's an emotional capacity, to, I think, to, um, although it might seem difficult to sort of let go of certain possessions, the amount of mm. sentimental value, it, it can be difficult, I think, to hold on to mm. even ideas. You know, ideas can be damaging sometimes, gathered to hold on to. And that's mm. what I found um, about these stories and about safely gathered in this idea mm. of safely gathered in. I saw mm. sometimes I was questioning, you know. Mm what are 
the ideas of containment in here. Um, yeah. What kind of when is containment safe? When is it not as safe? Mm -hmm. And this idea of containment as imagery, you know, it relates yeah. to the craft of the stories, but it's yeah. also a very psychological idea uh, yeah. as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, as soon as you put the word safely before something, you're implying that it's actually not safe, aren't you? If you have to say that something's safe, then you're then the, the subtext of that is that there is some sort of danger or threat. So yeah, the idea of being safely gathered in is, you know, it actually implying the opposite, that it's not safe at all. There's there's a few kind of yeah, the, the title is is quite significant really because it reflects the 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 stories that, you know, obviously safely gathered in the stories is um about how we hold things to us we, we gather our, our possessions but there's also something maybe a little bit more broad in the terms of that you've touched on there that maybe are the characters within the, the collection I wanted to explore that idea of you know how how gathered in are we with our you know with our lives and our interactions what is that you know what is that interplay in terms of the the way we gather the way we we hold together but there's also a bit of a um a little bit of reflection that that is is really just for me actually um in the title safely gathered in because um i have been transitioning to a slightly different way of writing um and this collection was put together with stories over the last 10 years almost actually exactly 10 years um the, the publication date so for me my original way of writing um how i began writing was to try and sort of tuck everything in very tightly, make sure everything is kind of very much there and really gathered in and, and held in. I want there to be, I want it to be dialectic. I don't want it to be um, that I'm directing a reader in any way, but at the same time, I needed this thing to be really controlled. Um, I'm a Virgo, maybe I'm a bit of a control freak. Maybe that's what that's about. But more recently, my writing over the last few years, I've been trying to be a bit more open, trying to explore and experiment with more of a, an open writing style and a lot of that is um, or, or in part down to um, a, a period of time over the last 10 years that Tanya Hirschman who's an incredible writer was doing some mentoring work with me through the Woe Mentoring Scheme and Tanya's feedback was just brilliant it was all about kind of breaking the text open a little bit making a bit of room um, just pulling things out a bit and 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 being a bit bolder and a bit braver and that was so critical to me in sort of de developing my um my craft and my practice and it's something that I'm still working on but it's this idea of kind of moving away from that that gathering um and into a more open space of writing what I mean what does that look like and how do you I think there's a sense isn't there you know I I feel this sometimes when I'm even if, if even if it's not fiction you you kind of feel maybe you want to control what people <laughs> read to an extent there's a kind of mm -hmm. fear of letting something go but what does a more open style of writing look like does it relate mm -hmm. to what kind of information you give about this it's a really good question so interestingly the sort of gathering in aspect of it isn't necessarily about me wanting to um direct the reader I really love it when readers read into things in their own way and I want them this once the story's out it's not mine anymore it's for everyone else to it's for the reader to decide what's going on and and that's that's very much you know um 
I like that. I like that it, it it's it's from my brain and then it goes to their brain and then because they have a whole different perspective and a whole different life, they'll connect to it and take from it in different ways. And that's really exciting. Um, so it's not really about that. It's more about that I need to know all the answers or I need to know what the story's fully about. And actually moving away from that and being a bit more open to the, the possibility that I don't have all the answers and I don't have, um, I don't know the um, the psychology of every single character in there um, to the nth degree. So it's, it's sort of like a, a, a personal letting go really um, and kind of stepping out and, and, and just trusting the process, I guess. Yeah, I wonder, I just wonder what that will sort of, it might not be a thing that the reader necessarily detects. It might be kind of more of a, like I said, a personal kind of thing for you. Mm. But that idea of um, gathered in, it is a, and especially when you do talk about psychology, it is, you know, we say people, we say to people, don't we, you know, contain yourself. Um, yeah. Keep, keep, you know, contain, yeah. contain yeah. your emotions, keep yourself in check, that kind of thing. Most of these characters are contained within themselves to an extent. I don't know. So maybe it might be more characters that are less, <laughs> less. Yeah, contained. that's interesting. And maybe the characters, you know, there's, there's certain characters that are just completely absent. So there's mm. the characters in the, in Safely Gathered In, you know, with their storage units, they're very absent. Then there's the the husband in the first story in, in Devon Switch, he's absent. And then we have um, the boy in the sun in Under the Foil, who's completely absent as well. He's disappeared. So there's maybe there's a sense of like stepping out of the moment in those kind of, you know, I think we're, we're not often encouraged like you say to be open emotionally like fully open to messy emotions and displaying that publicly that kind of containment is something that is often part of the culture isn't it that you know you, you like you say contain yourself keep a lid on it da, da, da. so that's maybe absenting completely is sort of a, a part of that you know characters that go away quietly to, to to, to be messy emotionally <laughs> no it's certainly it's a it's a prevailing attitude isn't it uh, and, and your stories are about how that's a can be a problematic term as sometimes it is a um it can be difficult difficult to do that it's not always a healthy thing to do is it i guess yeah. but i love what seeing where you know what this kind of new new style brings out or new kind of approach yeah. it's a new, it sounds like, well, like a new approach rather than new style doesn't it yeah it's i think it's about just freshening and finding new direction so I'm um, part of this is this idea of drawing together you know um texts or, or pieces of writing that already exist and this so I've, I've done that in a couple of the stories in the collection already but this is the new you know the new direction I'm, I'm calling it literature truve or lit truve it's a bit like object <laughs> truve, but it's, <laughs> it's with text um and you know things like shopping lists that you find in the trolley at Tesco that someone's written and I yeah, think so. Always. Yeah, I, I don't feel like me, but I keep notes. Obviously, notes on your phone. I have all everything on there. I have shopping lists. Yeah. I'm writing notes. I've re reviewed. I have notes for yeah. interviews. But there's something about I don't like getting rid of those, like the shopping lists. There's something about yeah. they have their place within all these kind of other, more, I don't yeah. know, more literary ideas. But yeah, there's something yeah. in that. I think so, and I think I'm I'm interested in quite domestic stuff, um, and I think for a long time. The domestic has been seen as perhaps lower brow or less uh, literary 
And I disagree with that wholeheartedly because it's the heart of things. Uh, it's the place where we feel we can, you know, people feel most exposed. It's the place where those relationships are negotiated. So I think exploring the stuff of the domestic space or the, the everyday and putting it under the microscope, because I think ultimately that's what short fiction does. It takes one thing and allows people that short space of time to really look at it think about what what is going on there um and actually by drawing two or three things together and, and collecting them almost like a little collage of different different things a bit like what I did with the safety gathered in it it kind of one kind of plays off the other and and I'm interested in those interplays so at the moment I'm looking at um a thesis that is in our um, archive here at Edgehill. Um, I'm an Edgehill uh, University lecturer and we've got an amazing archive and a fantastic team of archivists and I'm spending some time in the archive and looking at some um, resources. We're putting together a bit of an archive um, showcase with other colleagues in other departments in the, into research of, the, of these, uh, these items and the thing that I found that I really want to look at is a 1960s thesis on the the science of trampolining which I just think is such a brilliant contradiction because to most people you get on a trampoline and you bounce and it's that joyful freedom but this thesis that I, I spent a little bit of time with last week it's forensically pulling apart the science the the sort of physiology the uh, physical attributes of each bounce um, action and maintenance of the trampoline and all these really kind of technical details and it's so beautiful it's such a beautiful document and it's got these illustrations these hand-drawn illustrations in and I'm going to write a story using it I don't kind of know how uh, or what but it's this idea of bringing that piece of work that has nothing to do with literature into the literature arena and and exploring it and giving us space to um, look at it and think about it and think about an idea using that. They'd created their batter gardens in the middle of a heat wave. Kay remembers the stifling face mask, her hands sweating inside latex gloves. They'd worked in pairs, Georgie with Kay, making the coloured bacteria from inserts the previous lesson and loading them into pens with pipettes. Gathering round the front desk, Kay remembered Georgie standing close to her, the feeling of her breath on her cheek. They watched the teacher's hands tremble as she drew a tree onto the demonstration. Remember children, she'd said, you'll be taking these home as Mother's Day gifts, so think about your beautiful garden design, think about shape and form, but leave plenty of blank space for it to colonise. Back at their workbench, opposite her, Georgie was tracing her mother's face in purple and green onto the transparent biofilm from a photograph laid underneath. Kay's eyes prickled. She blinked away the unbidden picture of her own mother being washed by the Maldivian nurse who'd been staying with them a few weeks ago, who'd beckoned Kay into the hushed bedroom and pressed the damp flannel into her palm. Yeah, I, I thought you were interested in science um, or experimentation, but it comes with this sense of what, again, what's been found. But why was it the the trampoline thesis that that, that came to you? And who, you know, who was who was the author behind it? Was there any kind of relation to that? Or 
Yeah, so we've been trying to trace the author, somebody called Edward Moon, and we've been doing the archivists, particularly Dan uh, Copley in the archive, have been working really hard trying to uh, trace him. They've been talking to alumni because I did want to find out a little bit more about him. And, and also for copyright purposes, we have to make sure that we uh, do everything correctly. But why that thesis? I mean, there was lots, there's so many beautiful and intriguing things that are held in the archive at Edge Hill. but there was something when I first saw this particular piece of work, uh, it just struck a chord. And I think it's that contradiction of it being something that so scientifically looking at something that is ultimately for most of us, it's about that the pleasure, that moment being in the air, being suspended and being momentarily not off the earth. Um, it's like a, a an other place, isn't it? So there's there's that element of it that I just find massively intriguing and also I have two young children and they love trampolining <laughs> so <laughs> I'm thinking do I look at um do I draw other trampoline related documents into this and there's also something maybe there's something a bit more a bit more nuanced in there in the fact that when I'm reading a short story I don't want to be looking at metaphorically I don't want to be looking at all the uh, springs and the the way that the frame is constructed and I don't want to be thinking about how I'm supposed to move um, in that short story I just want to enjoy the lift I want to be in the moment and and experiencing it I expect the writer to have built the trampoline and to have created the story that gives me that moment if I'm just reading it for enjoyment if I'm if I'm studying it to teach it or to explore it with students then it's slightly different but for a lot of that mechanism to be sort of tucked away out of the way and for there to be space um, on the trampoline bed to bounce and enjoy the story I don't know if that really makes any sense and maybe this is stretching the metaphor ever so slightly but it's an idea that I keep coming around to and, and yeah how much do we as writers do we show our working out and how much do we just allow people to be in the moment I think that's a um difficulty that, that that we have as writers isn't it that we um it becomes I think it becomes harder doesn't it to sort of enjoy that lift as you say that kind of moment yeah. of suspension because it does for yeah. me that's the kind of I feel about sort of you know uh reading reading fiction it's mm -hmm. a moment of suspension where you I guess yeah. with any kind of art form or entertainment or, or whatever it is that that lift isn't it? that moment of suspension where you let go of some it's kind good. of ideas about the world that allow you to yeah. explore this fiction yeah Absolutely. But what I found is, uh, I find it interesting that it is about something you found, something that you've come across, mm -hmm. and whether or not it's scientifically valid, whether it's right or wrong in its assumptions or its uh, its mathematics formula, that doesn't matter. And this is what I find interesting about your story is that sometimes it doesn't matter what the the kind of reality, you know, the, 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 I think to the emails of the, the, the Dead Man Switch and I think to the storage mm -hmm. company, it's about creating enough to kind of make us believe in it. And we do believe in it. You know, mm -hmm. we do feel we are within these units looking at all these weird items. But why on earth would these, why would these items be all together in this one particular particular unit? And it is that sense of, yeah, like I said, of, of, of finding um, something, which is, that does recur. That is a unifying mm -hmm. theme within your stories, mm -hmm. I would say. I was just reading an interview and you said that you, you used to write stories as a child and then mm. you found all these stories because you because your father had kept them mm -hmm. um what was that experience like to find and find these 
I've not always wanted to be a writer, I know that much. But for you in this, it seems like this has definitely been the case. And then you you found all these stories that you had written as a child that you, I guess you'd long forgotten those. Yeah, you know, I'd always made little books and yeah. So finding them was, was, it was lovely. It was really a bit strange sort of going back to, you know, sometimes when you look back at things that, or photos of yourself or um, bits of video clip, or even like if you've ever done that thing where, you've scrolled back to like messages you sent five years ago or something and you revisit a person that you were back then it was you but maybe it can feel a bit like a different person or like a different world or uh, because it is isn't it it's you know your path is what is the phrase the past is a different country so that that idea of going back to something is uh, is interesting um but yeah <laughs> I mean they weren't staggering works of genius they were just six-year-olds writing rubbish but but enjoying the process of creating narrative and and making a story that that sort of threaded together from one from one scene to the next and and drawing pictures that were really really awful <laughs> but um yeah I sort of feel quite nurturing towards that child who, who did that no that's nice and that's nice that um I just just because there is a lot of you know finding things re- mm. rediscovering things and I just wondered then what it was sort of like to kind of see what the feeling was, you know, to find that these are being kept hold of, but they you hadn't kept hold of them, you know, somebody else had kept yeah. hold of them. They had a yeah. bigger value, I guess, for somebody else than they did you. Very much so. I think it's that it is that thing, isn't it, of of seeing the things that people hold on to and and yeah, the fact that he'd held on to those. I think there was a degree that that dad want, you know, I think he wanted to be a writer. And I think, you know, we all hope to we can't all live out all of our dreams but maybe we hope for our children or the you know the 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 young people that are um around us you know whether it be nieces nephews people that are in our families that we kind of hope that the things that maybe we don't achieve they'll be able to achieve and and um yeah it was quite moving to see that he'd hung on to those however he'd also hung on to a load of papers newspapers from the 60s and 70s um and we had no idea why and we scoured scoured the pages of those newspapers thinking there must be something maybe there was a little article or a feature or something did he write something and it's in there and but nothing and we we agonized over it for for many evenings with a glass of wine in hand trying to see what and in the end we're like right okay we think we can get rid of these but you kind of feel that responsibility don't you that burden of of it maybe being something important and I think any any person who's had to deal with um, had to process the the possessions of somebody that's not no longer with us has probably experienced that too. Um, that what do you keep, what do you pass on, what do you do with the things that surrounded yes. them? Just, just these reams <laughs> of newspaper articles yeah. that are no kind. Of... There were big papers as well. Stranger things you you find. But yeah, I mean, there's an idea that I think also prevails in your stories, and it's about how creations have a life of their own or can have a life of their mm. own um i think to your story the back toe garden i won't say well I'll, I'll sort of let you sort of describe what that back toe garden is but i find mm. it sort of summarizes this idea that there is whatever we create can have a life mm. of its own that extends mm. beyond its parameters that we sort of set it the idea in um, back to garden is we are several years into the future and there is there's a lot of um, climate crisis occurring so 
a lot of people are climate refugees. There's lots of strain on um, cities to contain everybody. The whole way people eat is different. And there's across the whole of it, there is this technology called synthetic biology. And just like any new technology, it, it itself is inert. It does have it has no good or bad. It's what we as humans do with it that can have positive or negative or neutral or um, mixed um, effects. So my two main characters in uh, Back to Garden, one of them is a high-end Michelin starred chef who uses everything that she cooks in her in her restaurant is synthetically engineered. Um, and she makes these incredible, delicious, kind of spectacular dishes with synthetic biology. And then her counterpart, who they went to school together, has grown up to become a, um, she uses synthetic biology to repair cracks in buildings that are no longer stable because of the increased numbers of, of humans um, in smaller spaces. So on the surface of it, we have this kind of using it for good and using it for bad with synthetic biology, but I wanted it to be a little bit more nuanced than that. And it takes, I wanted to take us back to the roots of um, their childhood, where they learned about synthetic biology um, in a classroom, growing it almost like, I don't know if people remember the crystal gardens used to be able to grow, um, where you put a little bit of water at the bottom of the, the paper tree and it all soaks it up and then grows these beautiful crystals. So kind of a bit like that, but with synthetic biology. And it's just so matter of fact, it's just like a thing they learn in the classroom when they're of a certain age. Um, everyone learns it, everyone's a bit bored of it, but they both go home with a little Bacto garden. And the uh, main character, she has released her back to her garden into the in into um the wild where it has continued to grow and grow over a number of years and do its own thing and it has that freedom to kind of just be organically spreading whereas the high-end chef uses she her synthetic biology learning then goes on for her to be quite controlled with how she uses it and so there's something quite interesting there in terms of maybe my different writing approaches mirroring the two the two characters there this is very psychological um but this idea of use you know and all of the all of the science in it is absolutely accurate we um, I worked on this story with um a fantastic uh, scientist consultant for Montenegros, and we had a brilliant time just talking through all the possibilities that we could, you know, explore with the, with the science that we were looking at. Um, as we were coming up with ideas and we'd go, oh, maybe that's not, you know, that's not probable or possible. Then Martin would do some research and go, well, actually, yep, they're already doing that. <laughs> so it's it was a really exciting project to work on using these kind of scientific scientific principles and, and thinking about how they'll just drop into everyday society. You know, we see that all the time now, don't we? You know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the fact that there was... Um they uncanny relevance with the scientific, you know, reasoning behind it or scientific mm. laws behind it. It, it. it harks back to those kind of stories like Frankenstein and, and Mary Shelley's stories mm. where, cause we see, we have descriptions of the, the, the this Bacto garden having a life of its, mm. a life of its own. Just this idea that I don't know if it just goes back to this kind of new approach to your writing of letting things go out into it the world and, and not controlling yeah. so much. It's kind of meaning, but I guess there's a less, uh, there's definitely a less, risky element in in, in your mm. stories and there is somebody like a monster like uh, Frankenstein <laughs> and I think yeah it's it's that evolution isn't it and I you know I talk to my students all the time about like continual development like we're never finished we're never done as humans like whatever 
that you know that goes across the board whether it's about learning and you know or developing our craft or our skills in whatever area so I see myself in that way as well like this kind of you know I'll I'm writing in a certain way now but I know my writing will continue to develop and you know it's exciting to sort of see you know what what else can I do what else can I explore and and I think that goes for I think that goes for all of us like to to be able to continue to to try new things and experiment and yeah not to be afraid of that um, it's a bit scary it is scary isn't it but uh like I say you just got to keep pushing the pushing the boundaries and you know mm. what is safely gathered and when does that word safely mm. become a, a problem rather than a you know yeah. like a safety mechanism but um sarah schofield thank you very much for joining me on the rippling pages podcast safely gathered in is out now published by comma press thank you very much sarah thank you thank you for having me thanks very much sarah for joining me today and of course my thanks to you the listener for joining me as well i do hope you'll join me next time when i'm going to be joined by the poet caroline clark if you've enjoyed today's episode why not give us a follow on rippling underscore pages and that's for both twitter and instagram and you can see more follow-up from the episode you've just listened to today. But otherwise, it's until next time. Thanks for listening.